you can live a long, healthy life if you're HIV positive. With the current treatments, we can get patients down to being undetectable. The array of options is so much greater today. U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. If someone who's HIV positive, they're taking their medication, they're undetectable, they're not able to pass HIV to their partners. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your HIV treatment is their prevention. Get more information at doitforumc.org. And just like our Lord in Matthew 23 spoke very pointedly in those seven woes of condemnation against the Pharisees propagating false doctrine, so we must speak, Jeff, against those who propagate false doctrine, who propagate a different God, a different deity, who do not represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We should not have a nice, cozy little conversation. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of Conversations. This week's guest I'm super excited to announce is pastor, singer, songwriter, Steve Camp. Now the one thing that I wanted to say about Steve before we really launch into this conversation is that I truly appreciate him, I appreciate his ministry, I appreciate his support for me over the last year since I've been involved with a lot of these conversations and a lot of these debates online. He's been one of those guys that's taken the time, and again, I'm just a random guy. I'm a nobody. I'm not a big name celebrity pastor or anything like that. I'm literally just a guy on Twitter, and he's taken the time to sit down with me on the phone because we're on opposite ends of the country, but he's taken the time to actually sit down with me and discuss a lot of the issues that we're dealing with. Uh, what's the Greek? Because I don't understand Greek. Um, what's the theology? How to understand these different passages? Um, and then just also provide guidance and mentorship. And I truly appreciate my friendship with Steve. Um, now, I wanted to sit down with Steve uh, this week and just have a conversation. Um, I was expecting to talk for about an hour or so. We ended up going for... I think a solid two hours long. And we talk, we're going to talk about everything from interfaith dialogue. We're going to talk a little bit about his story. We're going to talk about the Revoice Conference. We're going to talk about amillennialism. Um, we're going to talk about pastors and leaders that are compromising and remaining silent when the church is facing so many issues. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. That's what you're going to see. So for the next two hours, we're going to have this conversation. But again, what I want to reiterate to you is that I want to have conversations with people. Now, leading up to this to this release of this podcast, I, I believe that I just announced it yesterday or the day before, I've had so much blowback because I said that I was going to be talking about interfaith dialogue. Now, what I want you to understand here is that we can all disagree on what we believe about interfaith dialogue. Obviously, one side's right, one side's wrong, and that's logical because you can't have two opposing things that are both same or both true at the same time. But what I want you to understand is that I want our conversation to be rooted in scripture, not just a bunch of gotcha questions, not just a bunch of building up straw men in order to beat down the other side and win. What I want us to do is I want us to have a conversation. And what I've noticed on Twitter leading up to the release of this is that everybody is just trying to destroy people and conversations and debates 
before it even happens. I want us to come back to scripture. I want us to come back to the truth. And I want us to be able to interact with each other. I want us to be able to discuss these issues, debate these issues, have a lively conversation. We don't have to attribute poor motives to each other. Because here's the thing. We're, if you believe that Jesus is the Savior and Lord of this entire world, and you've placed your faith in him, and you've repented of your sins, and you're following after him, you, my friend, are my brother or sister in Christ. So we can disagree on these things, and we need to start discussing them, and debating them, and get down to figuring out what is true. And we need to use each other's arguments to stretch us, because it's either going to prove us wrong or it's going to reinforce our beliefs so that way we can believe what we believe even more. So I want us to take the time to converse with each other and listen to each other. And that's what I'm going to be doing here with Steve Camp. Now, we agree on most everything. And then at the end, I'm going to throw in something that we disagree and have a good conversation about some things that we disagree on. So tune in, take the time, listen. Thank you so much for tuning in. And, uh, at the end. Welcome to this week's episode of Conversations, and our guest this week is Pastor Steve Camp, who is a musician, as everybody knows, a pastor, and uh, welcome, and I'm glad we could sit down and have this conversation. Hey, Jeff, my absolute privilege. This is so great. I thank the Lord for Skype and a way to talk to each other. This is fantastic. I know we're both excessively busy people. And uh, so to have this time with you is my total delight and honor. And so I hope people are blessed by our conversation. Yeah, well, um, you know, again, I'm really glad we could sit down. And, and, you know, the thing is, is that since I've kind of joined in a lot of this online conversation on social media and with my blog and all that kind of stuff, the one thing that I've kind of felt is that out, out of everybody, you know, you've been one of the most supportive people of me, as well as just of truth in general, but also just always available at any time for, you know, help either with advice or, you know, understanding certain theological perspectives or the Greek, since I don't understand Greek at all. And so I've, I've been very appreciative of you, um, especially over this, just over this last year of just your support and encouragement and all that kind of stuff. Oh, hey, it's my delight. Well, you know what? You get online, and this community is small. I know there are millions of people on Facebook and on Twitter, uh, other direct kind of forms of websites and so forth and social media. But, you know, when, when you see guys saying the right things, doing the right things, standing up for the gospel— uh, and you know, people, I'm surprised because people, uh, don't realize this with you as much. Um, some of the angst, and I won't mention their names, but some of the angst of the gunfire that usually comes your way, right? uh, you are a peacemaker at heart. You're always saying, all right, listen, I know this and I know this, but, and it's not the theology of Rodney Kendrick. It's not, can't we all get along? It's, you're not that kind. You're, you're truth-based. But it's compassion-based, and you're for the unity of the body, as well as the upholding of sound doctrine and the authentic gospel of grace. And so it's always perplexing as I read some of the fire that you get from time to time. I'm thinking, man, this guy is being so kind to you. Uh, compared to what goes on in Twitter world, I'm, I'm always a little bit shocked and amazed. But I'm glad we're on the same team, and so it's always an honor to support anyone like yourself that is standing for the right things and the truth of the gospel, and especially 
for the unity of the body of Christ around the truth of God's word. So rare today. So it's an honor to stand with you. Yeah, of course. And I, and I think that's, that's the weird thing I think about social media just in general is I think a lot of it, it's kind of like how there's cable, cable news and, you know, all the interviews are like everybody's trying to get in, the, in their 30-second snippets and one-liners and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like that's kind of how Twitter is because everybody's just trying to get in their zinger. And yeah. you don't hear tone, you don't, you aren't able to expand really on what you're saying. And so it just, it almost just ends up leading to a bunch of fighting that's totally unnecessary. Um, and it's just, it's, it's been kind of cra a crazy experience altogether. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the good news is this. I mean, in, in spite of all this, I think it was A.W. Tozer in his uh, preliminary prayer when he was being ordained for ministry. Uh, he has a wonderful little prayer. I would encourage your listeners to pick it up. You can Google it. It's called The Prayer of a Minor Prophet. And as what Tozer wrote uh, for his ordination in his earlier mid-20s when he was being ordained uh, for gospel ministry and pastoral ministry. And one of the lines, Jeff, out of there, it's just always stuck with me. He says, Lord, help me not to be a curse when I'm trying to be a blessing to others. <laughs> yes. And that always has hit me hard. It's like on our best days, we can think we're blessing someone, we're encouraging them in the gospel, and they walk away completely offended. And I'm thinking, wow, what happened? What just, I, I thought we were here and we're nowhere near each other on this issue. And uh, so, you know, it's the, it's the banality of what we all face in social media, but man, you know, these things, great tools to use for the kingdom, yes. great tools to use for the gospel. And that's why I get on it. People ask me all the time, man, you're a pastor. You've been for decades in Christian music. Why do you even mess with social media? And Jeff, to be honest with you, it's just the desire in my heart to see other people grow in grace in Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't mean we lay down and capitulate on issues. There's nothing wrong uh, with being bold, with being an alpha male. I know that that's come under fire <laughs> as of late, but nothing wrong with having Paul's intensity while having Barnabas's encouragement. I think both of those things can coexist. And that's where I see the need today is to speak the truth in love, but speak the truth we must. I think it was Luther that said, Something along the line of, I'd rather speak the truth with too great a severity than to ever once act the hypocrite and conceal the truth. Mm -hmm. So in these days where truth, especially biblical truth, is considered hate speech, how refreshing to drive people to the text of Scripture. And that's why I'm on social media. I think it's partly in why you're on social media as well. I just want to see people process through the onion skin of God's word all that's going on in culture, politics, the church, and to wrestle even when the ugliness of unsound doctrine and even the perversion of the cults come into the discussion, that we get to direct people to the word of God, and what a great joy and privilege that is. And every now and again, someone responds in salvation to Christ. Somebody's brought back from the far country. Someone is restored in their relationship with their family. And when you see that, one incidence of that is worth a thousand negative comments just to get to that. You know, so it's a good thing. For sure, totally. And, you know, and I know that you you and I met during the whole interfaith dialogue kind of fiasco and all that kind of stuff. But the one thing yes. that I the one thing that I noticed about that conversation was how little people wanted to hear from the opposing side. 
Um, yeah. And kind of going through that whole experience, it ended up being, uh, okay, how do we shut down the opposition to win as opposed to how do we get down to what the truth is? Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to start doing this podcast is just have like a long form conversation where there's no more just a bunch of one-liners and zingers. Now let's actually duke it out and let's figure out what the truth is kind of a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I think this is the mark of, of good Christian dialogue. We're free to disagree. Mm -hmm. Uh, but like I tell people, I've been in ministry now, it's been 40 six years uh, here and uh, have traveled the majority of that time have been given the wonderful honor of being lead pastor of the cross church here in Palm city, Florida. Uh, We are a reformed Baptist church by, by covenant and by belief Uh, reform, meaning doctrines of grace, the five solas, the reformed great tradition of covenant theology, but we're also Baptistic. Uh, We believe in the great commission. And we believe in baptism by immersion. Um, I told Sproul years ago, RC, we were playing golf, and he said, Steve, why is it that you don't support infant baptism? I said, well, I'd rather be immersed in the truth than sprinkled with it. Yeah. And uh, he thought that was kind of fun. We had some great discussions on it. But we're, we're solidly a Reformed Baptist church, but at the same time, we're non-denominational in that we welcome so many different people every week. And... The one thing that I praise God for, we're a small congregation, but in our neck of the woods here in the Palm City, Stewart, Jupiter, uh, Port St. Lucie uh, area of Florida here on the East Coast, about two hours directly south of Orlando, we're known around town as being a gospel-centered, serious church about the Word of God. And, uh, And we don't care if people come in Bermuda's, hey, it's Florida, folks, you ever visit us? You can wear Bermudas. Just you can't wear a swimsuit, but you okay. can wear Bermudas. That, that's wear the Bermudas. that's the line right there is the swimsuit. <laughs> that's that's the line. And you know, we think ties are a product of the fall. So you don't have to wear a tie. You don't okay. have to do that. A suit and a tie, not, not a good thing here. Yeah. But you know, people can come and be welcomed and be loved. Uh, the thing we don't want them to be, Jeff, is comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're worshiping the one triune God in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one being of Yahweh, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal. When we come to worship Him, and we celebrate the Lord's Supper every single week here, uh, the Word is taught for 45 minutes to an hour. We're in the book of Daniel, and just beginning Daniel chapter 6 as we're talking. we go expositionally here. We have wonderful Sunday school classes for women's ministries and a, a mixed group as well. And man, they study the word. They study the word hard. And people that are coming are always saying, man, I'm not used to this. I was getting the sermon for a Christian down the road of the big seeker friendly church or whatever that they literally would walk in. And it's like a concert every week, or they hear 15 or 20 minutes of a life coach coach message, mm-hmm. and then they book. And no one's ever in their kitchen. No one's ever walking with them. They don't do discipleship. And uh, so it's really a delight. It's hands-on. When I served years ago with Dr. MacArthur at Grace Community Church, um, you know, large, large church, and all the, the wonderful trappings, and I say that positively, mm-hmm. when you have... 10 or 12,000 people coming, and then all the spinoff ministries enjoy the fruit 
of the labor of Dr. MacArthur and that entire church for many, many years. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there, there wasn't the emphasis there, even though it's part of their heart's desire, but on shepherding. Yeah. And to shepherd someone, you know, it's easy. you got to be on the mountaintops. That's the easy part with people's lives. But you know how it is, Jeff. If they're walking through that those valleys, it's even tougher. But there's nothing like diving into the septic tanks of somebody's life. Right. And it's tough slinging. It is tough doing. But I tell you what, I wouldn't trade this for any amount of money in the world uh, because it's real life church, it's real ministry, it's authentic, it's gospel-centered. And I know the people I preach to every single week, and they know me. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful. It is a, a wonderful uh, journey that we're having every week in God's Word and then seeing it really fleshed out in the, in the daily lives that we live. So all of that together in ministry uh, man, you know, it, there's no shortcut to holiness. We're all in process. There's no shortcut uh, to conviction of sin and to living out the truth of God's Word. It takes time. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's something here that we're so dedicated to and what we want to encourage people in the, the pots and pans of living that the hoi polloi that we all go through, you know, every day. Yeah. So really, really a joy. It's uh, it's that kind of functionality uh, that reminds me of what's important uh, and and keeping the main thing, the plain thing and to see what we can do for the kingdom. But in real community in the body of Christ, for sure. You know, and, and just that explanation right there is why I appreciate, you know, pastors like you and other and other pastors of churches that, you know, while they're not you know, on the crazy big conference circuit and, you know, pastoring a huge mega church or whatever it is, like you're in there with people's lives, walking through life with them, as opposed to their, you know, kind of once you get over a certain, you know, let's say, you know, attendance rate at your church, it's kind of hard to interact with people on a regular basis when, you, you know, as the pastor or the preacher or whatever it is. So I've always appreciated churches where, you're walking through life with the pastor as opposed to looking at him from a distance, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? The biblical model in Titus 1, 4 to 9 and in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 to 9, it's always a plurality of godly leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, we see elders, we see deacons, and depending on how you exegete uh, Titus 1 or more importantly 1 Timothy 3, uh, the women there could be deaconesses. The women could be the wife of the deacon. Uh, we know that they're not pastors. We know they're not elders. Right. Uh, I like what Dr. MacArthur said years ago. If you have a woman pastor as the lead pastor of your church, you neither have a pastor nor a church. Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of the trend of the, the tides that we're living in. Yeah. But I, I love being with the people of God, the men and women of God. I really do. I was born and raised in the church. I, I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois, the Holy City, the Vatican II. Mm -hmm. uh, family went to Wheaton College, okay. uh, grew up at Wheaton Bible Church there. Said the words, Jeff, as a lot of Christian people do growing up at age five. I was just simply parodying my family and what they were doing. But at age 17, uh, after a basketball game, you'll have to take that by faith. But I could touch the rim at 17. There you go, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I was playing basketball, dated a wonderful little cheerleader, and she was just, she owned my heart. You know, the puppy love we all go through as teenagers. But I tell you what, um, 
a young man led me to Christ, uh, really confronted me. He was only three weeks old in the Lord, totally unchurched. His dad found him three weeks earlier as a result of a bad acid trip in a pile of blood. His father led him to the Lord. He started coming to the church, and some people were saying, well, you need to hook up with Steve. And I think that the inference was, man, I'm the professional. You're the newbie. Let me disciple you. Right. And I met with him at a pizza place after a basketball game. His name's Pete. And uh, and I said, Pete, thanks for sharing your testimony. So glad you're saved. Did you want me to disciple you? He goes, disciple me? He goes, man, I'm here to tell you you're spiritually dead and you need to repent and come to Christ. Yeah. And nobody, Jeff, in my entire life had ever spoken to me that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, had never talked to me. And he, and he just laid out the gospel. And I got down on my knees in that pizza place that night and by God's grace confessed Jesus as Lord of my life. And uh, that was uh, when I was 17. I'm 63 now. So 46 years later, and the Lord led me into ministry almost immediately. Within six, seven months, I started writing songs. And uh, that led into a you know, a life in Christian music, uh, still am, but not as, not as, uh, full time. Right. Uh, but then also being discipled, uh, by a wonderful mentor of mine, Dr. Stephen Olford, who's now with the Lord. Uh, Stephen was the man who started Billy Graham in ministry in 1948. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just a dear man of God, a great Welsh preacher, pastor of the great Calvary Baptist church in New York city for many, many years. And, uh, but just a gifted man of God and the Lord brought him into my life. I, a year later, after I came to know the Lord, my father went home to be with Christ. I was holding my dad when he died. And, uh, my dad told me something I never forgot. He, he said, Steve, Jesus will never be all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. Mm-hmm. And those are the last words my dad ever said to me while on this earth. Uh, after that, uh, Howard Hendricks and different ones from Dallas. And then I met John MacArthur in the, in the late eighties and, uh, have known John, um, even though I haven't seen him for a while, but I've known him since, uh, 1988, I believe it was the first year. Uh, and, uh, just a great, great brother. So you don't agree with all your mentors on every little jot and tittle, but my mom used to tell me, Jeff, and she's now with the Lord. My mom used to tell me. Uh, if two people in a friendship agree on everything, then one of them is unnecessary. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, and you know, and so that's why I like people that see the soup can differently than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here's the thing: in ministry, uh, if someone is going to say to me, "Brother, let's reason together," I disagree with you. That's fantastic. But I feel like I'm a studied man, and in this, in being in ministry this long, if someone's going to say I've missed it all these years in a certain area, man, I'm happy to be taught, uh, you know, a better way. If it's a biblical way, right. um, you know, if I have holes in my theology, I just need someone to fill them, someone to tell me where I have holes because yeah. I want to have a great theology to love the Lord with. But. I'm not going to, uh, it's going to be a slow, slow journey. I'm not going to say, Oh, thanks for talking to me for 30 minutes. And, and, uh, man, I've completely switched my view. No, you know what? We're going to have to lock horns. We're going to sit down. We're going to have to spend some significant time. I'll read as many books as you want me to read. Let's get into the word of God. Let's sit down and talk this through. Mm -hmm. And then if for some reason I missed it, if I did have a blind spot there in my doctrine, 
well, I want to please the Lord with as good a theology as I can learn and study and live out in this lifetime. Right. So you know what? It's I, I'm teachable, but but I'm not uh, easily swayed after this number of years of study. And so that's why I think these convictions we all have, I think it's such a shock when we see dear men of God that we both love mm-hmm. go into interfaith dialogue and we don't need to repound that drum as much. But yeah. those kinds of things in people's lives, I think we're shocked when we see well-meaning men of God bring unsaved heretics, cultists, uh, unregenerate people to a nice, cozy, little, friendly discussion in a church. And we're exposing, well, you and I haven't done IFD, yeah. but they're exposing people, Christian people, uh, to unsound doctrine, and they think that they're championing sound doctrine. Now, I understand going into maybe their mosques or their synagogues, as Paul did, uh, or their places of, of worship. If they invite us in and we get to go, as it were, to Mars Hill mm-hmm. and answer their questions, that's different. But when we're in the Church of the Living God, I think it's beneficial to maybe invite in a former Muslim who now knows Christ and can speak of that transformation, or a a former Jehovah's Witness, or a former atheist, or a former Mormon, uh, a former Unitarian, whatever it may be. And that way they can speak authoritatively maybe to the heirs of that particular cult or false religion. Mm -hmm. But now they're doing it from a well-informed biblical context where they're not introducing false teaching but can speak to it as Paul would in the book of Acts or as he did in Galatians confronting the uh, unregenerate Judaizers trying to sway these young Christians to a false gospel. Whole other issue. So I think it's shocking today when people and men of God that you and I both love and respect have adopted methodologies and practices that don't line up with Scripture, and therefore uh, people like you and I have to get on there and to say, wait, not so fast. This doesn't honor Christ. Right. Let's examine this with the Word of God. And I'm surprised at the defensiveness of the other side when they think that they're above criticism. That was the biggest eye-opener for me is, are you saying that we cannot challenge you yeah. on these things? And for some reason, we're mean and unkind if we do so. On the contrary, we love the Lord in his truth, and we want to speak the truth in love. But, brother, I don't mind locking horns with you and even getting angry. I just don't want yeah. to sin in the anger, but let's come at it. And this is too important. People's souls are at stake, and we should not cower back from speaking the truth in those situations. I know you agree as well. Oh, no, yeah, I, I 100% agree. And I think one, one of the interesting things that I've kind of, you know, learned through this experience of kind of tackling this issue was how many people take a criticism as a complete uh, confrontation of their entire ministry. It's like, well, we, yeah. can, we can confront this one specific area without discrediting your entire ministry. Let's let's debate this one specific issue. Um, but the the question I was going to ask you about the interfaith dialogue yep. is because you were kind of you were talking earlier about how you enjoy sitting down and conversing with people that disagree with you because obviously we both we want to get down to the truth whether because we all know that we have blind spots and that sort of thing. But yep. so where is that line between having a conversation that with someone that you disagree with versus an interfaith dialogue with a false teacher? Like, where is the line where a believer, you know, shouldn't cross, if that makes sense? 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, great question. Excellent question. Here's the line for me. Uh, if someone comes to me in our church, Jeff, and said, you know, Steve, I struggle with the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, I think it was Augustine who said, if you deny the Trinity, you go to hell. But if you study the Trinity, you go insane. Why? Because it's the loftiest of all doctrines. One being in Yahweh, but three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. And they are co-equal, co-eternal, co-existing, all deserving of our worship and honor and praise and glory. That's difficult stuff. We have to take that by faith and as much as we can, Jeff, we study the Word of God and we show them, even though Trinity as a word is not in Scripture, certainly the truth of that word is. Now, there's a big difference between someone maybe that's in my church or is even starting to come and said, I got real questions on this. Man, I'll, I'll book a, a long pot of coffee, <laughs> you yeah. know, here at the house. And, uh, and, you know, we'll sit for two or three hours. And then a few days later, they'll invite a few more friends and we'll sit and we'll go through it. I've had as many as eight or, eight or ten young men show up at 11 o'clock at my doorstep and say, can we talk to you about some theology? And I'm saying, okay, come on in. And then I'll go in the back, and if my wife is asleep, I'll wake her up, and they're like, hey, is Miss Cindy cooking? <laughs> they yeah. love her cooking. And uh, and you know what? We'll put on some coffee, show Russell up some soup and sandwiches, and we'll talk till 1 or 2 in the morning about the things of the Lord. That's one thing. That's discipleship. And we need to be patient in walking people through that so that they're settled in the Word of God, settled in who the Lord is and the nature of the Godhead, because this affects worship, settled in the excellency of the gospel. Just like a plant that is pulled up too many times out of its planter, that does damage to the roots. If you're not settled as a Christian in the essentials of the faith, you're going to be easily uprooted. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a big difference to that than me running into T.D. Jakes in an airport like I did many years ago who's a modalist, a sabellianist. He denies the Trinity. He worships a different God of the Bible than we worship. In fact, what he worships is not the God of the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, he denies that doctrine. He denies the Godhead. How, he how denies does he, the how does eternal he existence. How does he rationalize uh, that of, you know, because he's, he's separating each, it's basically, is if I remember correctly, is he believing that there's, three individual gods like how, how does that work with his belief no he's he's not a tritheist mm -hmm. uh what he is is a modalist he believes there's one being and at a certain time he chose to manifest himself as father okay. or manifest himself as son or manifest himself as spirit but not three persons mm -hmm. simply three different manifestations of the one being and that's how people won't ask the, the, the hard question. Mark Driscoll, many years ago, I've never met Mark in person, but I've talked to him numerous of times by phone. I was one of his main critics when he was coming on the scene, and I tried to reach out to him a little bit. And uh, 
he was going to one of the Elephant Room conferences. Yes, I remember And that, yeah. he and James McDonald, they were putting on this little sham of a conference. Uh, I'm surprised that they were able to get David uh, Pratt and different ones there to uh, Platt, different ones to come. And these guys, Platt, these guys never did, never said anything. Uh, they were absolutely timid and cowardice in how they approached T.D. Jakes. Well, this whole hubbub around, I think it was Elephant Room 2, was about T.D. Jakes. And I called Mark. And I said, Mark, are you going to confront him on his anti-Trinitarian beliefs? The man's soul is in jeopardy. And he goes, well, I hope so. And I said, ah, <laughs> we already lost. Yeah. And he said, what do you mean? And he, I said, you said, I hope so. Uh, it's a non-negotiable, brother. You're going to step up, man up, cowboy up, however you want to say it. And you're going to speak the truth and love to that man and call him to repentance, or you're going to just be swaged by his personality, his money, his platform, and so forth. And the latter one out, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. How Jakes tries to justify it is three manifestations. But when I sat with him, I don't even know if he'd remember, but when I sat with him years ago, and we had a brief layover, I saw him and went over to him, and there was absolutely uh, a blindness there. Uh, he wouldn't acknowledge it. In fact, I called his church shortly after that visit, and I thought, well, maybe he felt put off or a bit awkward, and uh, so I called his church, and I asked to speak to one of his right-hand guys there, and I said, listen, I, I'm a big donor with your ministry. Um, I love T.D. Jakes, but I hear he doesn't believe in the Trinity and or that he's capitulating on that belief. And I don't believe in the Trinity either. How do you guys handle that criticism? Mm -hmm. So I was I was not being truthful. I was going incognito, as it were, as a phone call. Right. But I wanted to hear them unfettered talk to me. And the guy says, well, here's what we say to appease those guys. And it's exactly what Jake said. Well, we say there's just one God, but three manifestations. But, oh, no, we clearly deny the Trinity. It doesn't matter what these people say. We'll put this on because we don't want the scuttlebutt out there. It affects our giving. But we are happy to, uh, you know, to let you know that we are not Trinitarian either. We deny that. We reject that. Mm -hmm. And then I said, well, listen, I have to be honest with you. And soon enough, he's, he hung up very quickly. He right. knew he got caught. Yeah. So this is the thing. Here, here, to your initial question, here's the initial, here's the response. With someone who's a false teacher, with someone who's propagating that kind of false doctrine, um, I don't invite them into our home. I don't sit and have a long cup of coffee. My wife does not cook for them. Mm -hmm. uh, I show that kind of man the door. You you don't play footsie with a wolf at Starbucks. You don't try to have a nice little conversation of faith with someone who denies and is an affront to a holy God and the sound doctrine, denying the Godhead. What Jakes believes is purely satanic. Mm -hmm. What Yasser Qadi believes is a Muslim is purely satanic. It's idolatry. Uh, what Joseph Smith believed about God and about creating Mormonism, it's idolatry. It is a different God. Uh, what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. It's a cult. It's not true. Michael the Archangel didn't materialize as Jesus. That's false doctrine. That's a different God. That is heresy. And just like our Lord in Matthew 23 spoke very pointedly in those seven woes of condemnation against the Pharisees propagating false doctrine, so we must speak, Jeff, against those who propagate false doctrine. 
who propagate a different God, a different deity, who do not represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We should not have a nice, cozy little conversation. Uh, there's, a, there's a group of eight or ten young men up at a local Starbucks here that I share the gospel with. They're all Muslims. Some are, uh, I think most are from Saudi Arabia, some from Iran, uh, some from Malaysia. And there's a new mosque just down the street, not far from us, 10 minutes. And I've gone to that mosque several times, knocked on the door and tried to engage the imams. I wanted to call them to repentance. They won't open the door. So these young men, they were studying to get their pilot's license. There's an airport not far from this one Starbucks. And they wanted to get into Vero to learn how to be professional pilots. They're all in their early to mid-20s. Some are maybe 19 or 20, but all in their early to mid-20s. Mm -hmm. They finally, I engaged them in, in conversation. And my first question to them was, are you a fake Muslim or a real Muslim? And they all started laughing. And they said, what do you mean a fake Muslim? I said, well, I'm a Christian. And I'm reformed by theological beliefs. And and I said, we in, in the church, in the Church of America, the Christian Church of America, I said, we have fake Christians. We have Easter and Christmas Christians. We have maybe I'll show up for an hour on Sunday morning, but don't bother me Monday through Saturday throughout the week Christians. Uh, we have fake Christians. And so I said, are you fake Muslims? And, and again, they started to chuckle. Well, about half of them said they were. Mm -hmm. They said, yeah, we don't believe the Quran. We don't. We really have never read it, but we all attend the thing down here. But yeah, in actual I'm a fake Muslim. And then some were real Muslims. And I thought, okay, I got to get to these guys. And so over the period of the last several months, I've shared with them, just saw them recently and said, man, let me buy you guys dinner somewhere. I'll take you out to, to lunch, take you out to dinner. We'll get pizza. One guy says, I love sushi. Can I have sushi? And I said, absolutely. I'll buy you sushi. Yeah. No, no worries. Well, you know what? There's a difference between talking to one of them and sharing the gospel and wanting to see them come to know Jesus. And I've shared the gospel with each and every one of them so far. There's a difference between that. And then if Yasser Qadi was to show up at the Starbucks and say, Mr. Cotty, I'm the, the man that you blocked after three or four tweets because you didn't want to engage on the aspect of Christian faith. Right. If Yasser Cotty said, hey, sit down, let's have a cup of coffee, I would sit with him, but for one purpose, and that's to call him to repentance, not interested in a friendship, mm -hmm. not interested in, in a nice little clever conversation. I want to see him confronted as a teacher, as an imam, not only of Sharia law, not only as a supporter of ISIS, not only one that would support the overthrow of our government here as a, as a national overthrow through Sharia, uh, not only as a, as a friend of Linda Sarsour, um, not only as one who has promoted jihad around the globe, but as a man who's been blinded by Satan through the false teaching of, of Muhammad, the pedophilia prophet, mm -hmm. uh, I would want to confront that teacher I'm not going to ask whether he's a fake Muslim, Jeff, or a real Muslim. I know what he is. Right. And there's a difference. So just like with T.D. Jakes, just like with any of these other propagators of false doctrine, man, our heart should go out to lost people of all stripes of society, of all the cults, of all the faiths, of any sexual persuasion. We should welcome them into our churches to hear the gospel. But if a false teacher shows up, if Cadi were to come to our place of worship, uh, and start to engage talking with some of our people, I would just show them the door. Because a false teacher, we are not to entertain. And that's the biblical model. 
the Lord showed compassion to unsaved people, no matter what the sin, to see them come to salvation in him. But with the false teachers, he reserved his strongest words for it. And I think that's the model that we ought to emulate in our day. Yeah, and then, you know, and I think that there, there, to a certain degree, there is a there's a complete difference with how you interact between someone who's a follower of a false religion versus somebody who's a teacher of a false religion. There you go. You said it in, in a brilliant economy of words. That's it. Yeah. No and, question. And we that, ought to be able to go to any of them, but the teachers... I'm sorry. We don't we we engage them, mm-hmm. but it's to call them to repentance. We don't try to have a nice little cozy conversation as a friend of mine did with Yasser Khan. Right. And you know, and that and that's that's my thing too is that to me the reason why you publicly confront false teachers, it isn't necessarily although it would be great if they did, but it's not necessarily to bring them to repentance because more than likely if they're a false teacher they're more than likely not going to be repenting because they're so down that dark you know path but it's to protect the flock and protect the potential followers of the false teaching um and to warn people not to follow said person if that makes sense Um, oh absolutely yeah and so like a lot of i know a lot of people will confront you know both you and i and a lot of other people who publicly confront false teachers or even, you know, somewhat good guys, but that are in error in a certain way. And I always keep saying it's not, it's my critique isn't necessarily an attack on them. It's to protect others from following that error of whatever that is. Um, Yeah, I think it's a both and situation. mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in Acts 17, this is where all the modern day apologists go that support IFD in this kind of methodology. You know, in in verse uh, 16 of Acts 17, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So what do we see? Paul enters Athens. He's overcome by literally on every street corner, at every house. This would have been beautifully carved Athenian little gods, maybe even reminiscent of the Baal gods of Babylon. It's all idolatry. It's all it's all the the uh, construct of demons, if you please. Mm-hmm. And so he went first in the synagogue. Why? Because he was a former Jew. In fact, he was a former Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee. Philippians three tells us, blameless as to the law of the tribe of Benjamin, as a persecutor of the church, he thought he was doing God a favor by killing Christians. Uh, he was a Pharisee. He, there was only 6,000 Pharisees at the time, so he was a teacher of the law. He had a Ph.D. in it. And so the very first place he went to to share the gospel, he was not having an interfaith dialogue. He was going into the synagogue to reason with the very people that he once killed Christians for. He walked into the synagogue to talk with them and to justify out of the law and the prophets and the scriptures, the Psalms included, that Jesus Christ is Messiah and that whom they crucified, God raised on the third day. So he went in to reason with them. Uh, He went in to the devout persons in society. He was in the marketplace. He was with anybody from the street that was there that happened to be there. But... That here's the key in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Now, why did they try to discredit him? It says he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And what was the foreign divinity? Because he says he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, foreign to their ears. Mm -hmm. foreign to. So what did they do? Paul didn't say, hey, listen, let me get together some of the brothers and we'll sponsor this and we'll bring you into town. We'll give you a little honorarium. We'll have punch and cookies afterwards. And over here, we'll set up in a true church and let me just bring you guys in. And what a great chance for the Christians to know how to share the gospel with you. And you can share what you want to share and let's see the best man win. No, not, nothing of that. Right. It says they took him and brought him to the Oropagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Here's our rule of thumb again, Jeff. Paul didn't bring the Epicurean Stoic philosophers of his day into the church. They asked him to come to the Areopagus, you know, the place where all religious and philosophical thought took place, raised up high. Mm -hmm. And they invited him to come, he says, so that we may know what this new teaching is, that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived that would spend their much time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, next thing, in verse 22, Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus. And now, this is not a dialogue, Jeff. This is a monologue. And he says, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He's referring to their idolatry. He's not paying homage to it. He's simply saying you have this practice. And through the rest of Acts 17, he is preaching the gospel of repentance and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it says this, when they heard at the end of Acts 17 of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear about this again. So Paul went out from their midst, and some men joined him and believed. And among who were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and their woman named Demarius, and others with them. They, did, they gave him an audience. He went faithfully to their invitation. He preached the gospel faithfully. He even called down what they were worshiping as idols. But he told them about the living creator God and then the one whom he has sent, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he shared the gospel. And he says, God is now calling men everywhere to repent of their sins. Um, there was no interfaith dialogue. There was no YouTube video of this. No one was making money off this. No one was promoting a book off of this. Mm -hmm. It was not in the church, and Paul went to them as any Christian should, <coughs> pardon me, is a faithful missionary, as a faithful evangelist, as a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those of you who are listening today, some of your friends might say, dude, why are you living this way? You don't swear like we do. You don't party like we do. Uh, you got this cross around your neck. Why do we always see you reading the Bible when you're hanging out? Man, we got a party going. Would you come over and talk to us? Well, the answer is yes. I'll be happy to go. Right. You know, but we don't bring them into the church for this reason, to put them on a platform and for them to talk about what they do as not being a follower of Jesus, because that's going to infect maybe some naive or unsuspecting listener within our local churches. And I know many have said, well, don't you think Jesus is strong enough not to let go of his sheep? Well, yeah, of course. But if you are a student of the Old Testament, 
every little time that Israel fell, it was to the sin of idolatry. People got in. They tickled their ears. They bought it. And the Lord was continually calling them to repentance. Jesus is faithful and he saves us to the uttermost. But that doesn't mean we should be foolish or naive or just plain stupid, Jeff, Mm -hmm. in allowing unsaved people to come into the church and to put them on an equal plane with Christianity or to elevate, in some instances, the Quran to the level of Scripture. Uh, no, one is a book of Satan, one is a book of, of the Lord Jesus, and we don't want to elevate the one and demote the other, so there's equal playing field and conversation. It doesn't happen. Go to the mosques, go to the imams, hey, listen, I wish my my friend who you know that we're talking about, wish I, that he would just go to Iran and Saudi Arabia and Syria and go out on the streets there and herald the gospel and call them to repentance and say that Allah is a false God and that Muhammad is a false prophet. Let's see how warm the reaction is at that point. Will not happen. Mm -hmm. So we have a stunted view, I think, of this in America. And the whole idea is it's not that every faith and every sharing with a non-believer is an interfaith dialogue. Not not at all. It is to say that we are called to be witnesses and to give a reason for the hope that's in us. Just don't bring false teachers into the church and elevate them to a place that only the true word of God should be preached and spoken about fluently. Right, exactly. And, you know, and even kind of moving on a little bit from interfaith dialogue, but still dealing with a lot of error and let's say false teaching that has been infiltrating the church. I, I know that, you know, there's organizations, let's say like the gospel coalition and some, some other groups that have been, you know, bringing in a lot of more liberal ideology and then trying to wrap that around in Christian theology. I mean, you, you mean you deal with like socialism, you, you deal with, uh, you know, white privilege, you deal with all, you know, redistribution of wealth. that's even infiltrating yeah. the church. And yeah. it's all wrapped around this theological bent. Um, how are Christians supposed to discern between truth and error in those areas? And um, what what are some ways that you know people can be prepared to kind of have a good response to those kinds of things? Boy, excellent question. First of all, uh, Hebrews chapter five, uh, verses seven. Uh, well, let me let me go even a little bit farther. Verse 11 uh, to uh, 14 to the end of the chapter there. Just a few verses about this. We have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. The basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But... Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained, and how? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil, and that's in the Word of God. Here, the Apostle Paul, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, Paul is telling these young Jewish believers, by now you should be teachers, but you're constantly nourishing yourself on on milk. You're just children still cooing when you should be mature adults. And he tells us here, how is it that you gain discernment? Well, you have the powers of discernment trained by constantly distinguishing between good and evil 
How? By feeding yourself on the word of righteousness, another phrase for the scriptures. So what we see with gifted men of God today is when we have men that we've trusted in the past, uh, men that have been absolutely stalwarts for the gospel, uh, we can't take anything for granted. Um, because we know that as Paul writes to a young Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up, conceited, understands nothing, has a healthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words. Uh, and they think that even godliness is a, is is a means to great gain. Um, there's the prosperity folks. Uh, there's the TBN crowd. There's Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and T.D. Jakes and Joyce Myers all wrapped up. Mm -hmm. uh, and there goes men of the PCA and the Southern Baptist Convention that are opening up their doors to a Marxist-based social gospel that are sponsoring LGBTQA plus, uh, you know, uh, conferences welcoming uh, lesbian, gay, transgender, uh, queer nation folks into the church as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ while still being labeled LGBTQA. It's just, it's ridiculous. Romans 1 calls that lifestyle, it's, it's sin like all of our sin is. But it, Romans 1, Paul calls that lifestyle a degrading passion or a vile affection, abomination to the Lord, culminating in a reprobate mind. He, mind. he even says that it's a sin against nature. So all sin is sin, but all sin is not equal in scope or in weight or in consequence. Right. Now, and no, so no, now sorry, you have evangelical leaders, Jeff, trying to be culturally, politically correct, thinking they're being warm and loving to reach out to people, but yet these are the very ones that are letting the floodgate of that stuff in. Right. Now, now the one of the questions that I had in regarding to cuz we're talking about like, you know, getting into, you know, revoice and that conference and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so we understand the gospel that you cannot earn your salvation, right? And that, you know, we understand that we're sinners and that we have to repent, place our faith in Christ and follow after him. So how, how does that play into someone who, let's say, has spent the majority of their life identifying as gay or homosexual or transsexual or whatever it is? How does right. that how does that correlate with the gospel in that if you can't earn your salvation, at what point must you, let's say, stop, quote unquote, being gay or stop associating with that and uh but still be considered a christian is it at the moment of salvation is there a grace period after you believe in the gospel how does that play out biblically boy excellent question justification sanctification um paul says in first corinthians 6 9 to 11 do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god that's you and i that's all people that have ever been born we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice the key phrase there. Those who practice those things. 
That's also what Galatians 6, 14 and following says. It's the practicing of the deeds of the flesh because we all sin in thought, word, or deed every day, even as regenerated people. We all sin in thought, word, or deed every day, but it's the practice of the sin. We once were slaves to unrighteousness. Now we're slaves to righteousness. And Paul is clear in Romans 7, I am a born-again man. I'm a regenerated man. I'm a new creation in Christ, but I'm incarcerated in unredeemed flesh. So the new I is Christ in me, the hope of glory. I'm a new creation. But I, I live in unredeemed flesh, so therefore my body waits for the redemption of the glorified state. I must present my body of flesh every day as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, pleasing unto God. I must be renewed every day by the renewing of my mind and not be, I must be transformed by the renew, renewing of my mind and I must not be conformed to this world. There's the, the both and. That's sanctification. We are justified, declared righteous, saved, declared not guilty by the sovereign God of the universe through the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. Every sin ever committed by everyone that would ever believe was thrust on Jesus, the guilt, the penalty, the shame, the defilement of that sin thrust on Christ, even the very wrath of God is eternal judgment of wrath that you and I, Jeff, deserve in an everlasting hell forever and ever was thrust on Jesus. So that by the gift of his grace through faith in Christ alone, by the regenerating work of the Spirit and the sovereign loving election of God the Father, we are born again and we die to the penalty of sin. And we are given new life in Christ, regenerated. Now, in sanctification, that's the daily work, now as a Christian, by which we are daily conformed to the image of the Son. Um, holiness, hagias, uh, sanctification, hagiasmos, the process of daily conforming ourselves to the image of the Son, of being holy. And so what we see here in 1 Corinthians 9 the Apostle Paul says, you live this kind of life, and this is not an exhaustive list. Anyone who doesn't repent of their sin, doesn't put faith in Christ, who evidences their unregenerate life and these kind of things, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's judgment. You believe the Son, you have life. You reject the Son, you do not believe in him, the wrath of God abides on you. But, notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, but, but such were some of you past tense, mm -hmm. but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, if you're a gay man, if you're a lesbian woman, uh, if you are part of Queer Nation, you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Same-sex same sex attraction, same-sex orientation, SSA, SSO, is now crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but Christ lives in me. But the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's a both end. We die to that old life. We die to that old orientation. We die to that old identification. And we are new creations in the Lord. Old things pass away. All things become new. But 
do Christians, can Christians still have thoughts that are not right? Yes. Can a Christian uh, sin grievously before the Lord? Yes, but it will not be the practice or the habit of their life. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. When someone says, I'm a gay Christian, when someone says, I'm a queer Christian, when someone says, I'm a lesbian Christian, uh, well, can you imagine if we applied that to every sin? Uh, I'm an adulterer Christian. I'm a human trafficking Christian. I'm a pedophile Christian. Uh, I'm a self-righteous Christian. Uh, I'm a thief Christian. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, just go down the list. We wouldn't condone that with, uh, you know, I don't want to live a hyphenated existence there, Jeff. Right. <laughs> you know, I want to be a, I want to be known as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a sinner saved by grace, died once to the penalty of sin, as the old saying goes. Then Titus 2, right? Grace has appeared bringing salvation to all. But once I'm a believer, now what does grace do? Uh Verse 11, or pardon me, verse 12, grace now trains us or teaches us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passion, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for, the, waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We die once to the penalty of sin. All of us, as believers, we have to die daily. Romans eight thirteen. we put to death the deeds of the flesh. We get killing sin or it will kill us, as John Owen stated. Mm-hmm. We die daily to the power of sin, but with the hope and the promise and the expectation that one day we're going to live free from the presence of sin. What do I say to my gay friends, uh, my lesbian friends, my queer nation friends? Repent and come to Christ. Once they come to Christ, man, die daily. If you're struggling with desires of same-sex attraction, put it to death. Every day, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow him. But you're no longer a gay man. You're no longer a lesbian woman. You're no longer a queer nation ethic. And if for some reason you're transgender, then I want to say, as as your DNA, you could look like a woman. You could put breast implants in. You could cut things off. You could take estrogen to make your voice go higher. You could grow your hair long. You know what? Everything about you says you're a man. Mm Mm-hmm. As a regenerated person now in Jesus Christ, return to living your life as a man. Stop the estrogen, take out the breast implants, be a man, and ask God to restore your manhood. Same thing if you're a man trying to, uh, a woman trying to be a man. Do the same thing as a result of your new creation. But you're no longer hyphenated. You are not a queer nation Christian. You are not a gay Christian. You are not a lesbian Christian. Same-sex attraction is no longer your attraction. It's your affection for the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. Mm -hmm. Same-sex orientation. Now your orientation is to please the Lord and to honor him and to walk with him. But when those thoughts come up, you got to do what every other person in the body of Christ does, regardless of their sin. You've got to put to death the deeds of the flesh every day. And you're no longer gay. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. But when those same... Same-sex feelings come up, crucify him. Yes. You don't negotiate with that sin. That's the difference. I refuse to, uh, to offer to those in the gay community a gay status in linking that with biblical Christianity. No way. Right. No way. That's an abomination 
to a holy God. You cannot marry those worlds together. So you're not a lesbian Christian. You're not a gay Christian. You're not, you're not a queer nation Christian. You know, those things are, are clear in scripture. Be identified with the risen Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ. And even effeminacy, Jeff, as a man in scripture is forbidden. You know, if man, if you were in the gay lifestyle, if you have been wonderfully saved and radically transformed by the gospel, you know what? I'm not saying you don't have those feelings ever again, but when you do, put them to death and ask the Lord, Lord, I was effeminate. In fact, I prided in my feminism as a man. Now make me a man, a real man, a manly man. Uh, I'm not saying you have to be John Wayne, ride a horse and shoot things. Yeah, <laughs> what yeah. I'm saying is, is that restore to me a male constitution in my feminized existence. Restore to me as a woman, no longer a butch demeanor, but a feminine demeanor, a godly womanly demeanor before Christ. And when those feelings come up, let's come to the word of God. That's where we must walk with men and women that have come out of the gay culture and are wonderfully transformed by the gospel. And man, I'll defend that man or that woman a hundred times a day. I'll risk my reputation for them. Mm-hmm. Why? Because like like us, Jeff, I have no idea what it is to be gay. I have no that's not my area of weakness. I have no idea what it is to be a cocaine freak or a heroin addict. I have no idea what it is to be a queer nation or a transgender. I have different issues. I need to put my thoughts to the cross every day. Proverbs 24, 9 says the thought of foolishness is sin. We have to crucify those thoughts every day. Like Paul said, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man of I, there's the transformed life incarcerated in unredeemed flesh. And every believer on the planet wrestles with that. Well, let's die daily. Hey, is a, is a, is a, person coming out of homosexuality, I'm not going to give you your own Bible. I'm not going to give you your own brand of sanctification. I'm not going to allow you to hyphenate your life and say, I'm a queer Christian, I'm a gay Christian, I'm a trans Christian, I'm a lesbian Christian. No way. We don't get to join. No true Christian gets to join their past life of sin to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Like Lazarus, when he died and he came back, the Lord said, the Lord rolled away the stone. He was dead. He brought him back to life. And now he said to his disciples, go help unravel, unravel Pardon me, his grave clothes. Mm-hmm. There's a lesson in there. We must walk with people and gradually unravel their grave clothes. But let's be clear of who you are. Man, I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. And I want to live as his man or his woman transformed by the power of the gospel. You say that you're a gay Christian. That's not transformation. That's accommodation. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't join that abominable lifestyle that any of us had before we came to know Jesus and link it with a holy God. Uh, That's foreign from Scripture. Right. That's foreign from Scripture. Even Paul says of his murderous activity in killing the church, he said, I acted in ignorance, but I was a murderer in that I persecuted the church of the living God. He doesn't say that he's present tense doing that, or that's his SSA. That's not his attraction. Mm-hmm. That's not his orientation. He repented of his Judaism. He put to death that old man by God's grace in Jesus Christ. 
And then he lived out the transformed life, even though he considered himself the chief of sinners. Right. That's where all of us have to be. I, I just think in people's, whether, listen, let me speak frankly here. Whether it's John MacArthur's silence on this issue, or whether it's Al Mohler's semi-little two-step dance he did around it because Nate Collins, the founder of Revoice, was was Al's boy, man. He was a Ph.D. doctrinal student there in New Testament studies at Southern Seminary. Mm -hmm. Whether it's D.A. Carson fully embracing this kind of motif along with Tim Keller, or whether it's men of God like you and I calling them to repentance. You know, their silence is sin. Their halfway condoning of this to appease friendship, it is sin. They should be men of God, not accommodating the culture, not being silent in it, because everybody at your, at your Bible conference next year that was silent on this thing, you're going to have to disinvite. Who cares? Right. Are we men of the gospel and men of God's word, or are we not? And shame on them for their silence. And shame on them for their accommodation because they were trying to play the friendship card. Mm -hmm. And shame on Christianity today for thinking they're being politically correct and all wonderful and loving by endorsing this thing. Or shame on the PCA and the SBC of saying, oh, we need to show grace and compassion and love. That's not love. Listen, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the great commandment. Then. You love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love your neighbor by divorcing from the love of your neighbor, the holiness of God. Mm -hmm. Impossible. Otherwise, then unregenerate people could love their neighbor as they love themselves, and they can go on sinning, and we don't worry about it. But as a Christian, we cannot welcome that mentality or that motif into the church. And this is this is the problem with IFD. It's the problem... With Revoice, it's social justice socialism, mm -hmm. and it's not in accordance with Scripture. Right now, now one of the one of the questions that I had within this is what. So one of the defenses that was coming out of Revoice was as long as you don't act on it, basically you're okay, right? And so you know, because because I, I, I the passage that you quoted earlier was that if you're you know acting out in in this area or in this sin. That that's you know completely wrong. Right. That's sinful. That sort of thing. So what what is the biblical response to those who say, look, we struggle with this, but as long as we don't act on it, we can still be Christians with those kinds of desires. Yeah. Well, Matthew Matthew fifteen answers that I think beautifully. Verses eighteen and nineteen. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. In other words, what's in the well comes up in the bucket, and it's this that defiles a person. The Lord is saying. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Just add to the list. These are what defile a person. Um, we also know in Matthew chapter 6 that desire does count for something. That we know if someone is, is lusting in their heart, or pardon me, Matthew chapter 5, that if someone is lusting in their heart, in this case, he brings it into the heterosexual context. But lust is still lust. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. 
you know, tear it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. In other words, you can't negotiate with certain kinds of sin. It's too powerful. Mm -hmm. And so what the Lord is saying here, desire means something. Desires mean something. He's not saying if you have the desire, oh, just go out and commit adultery anyway because you're already guilty. No, the act also means something. But he's saying that the lustful thoughts, the desire, we have to put to death immediately. We can't negotiate with it. He's not talking for physical mutilation, but he's saying we must put those things to death. The desire means something. It comes from the heart. And so for someone to entertain wicked desires of the heart, but never act on them, and they they label the desire as being okay. I don't know if people realize this. Those that aspire that kind of faith and belief, and I'll use the term theologically in a very liberal kind of way. Right. Those that say that, Jeff, as Christians and say, well, I'm no longer practicing gay. I'm not sleeping with another man or I'm of the same sex. I'm not sleeping with a woman of the same sex. I still have those desires. I'm just not acting on them. I don't know if people realize that, but the latest statistics on that among evangelicals who came out of the gay lifestyle and say they're, they still have all the orientation and the same-sex attraction, and they have all those desires, and they're not acting on the desires in terms of physically engaging, being with another person physically, 80% of those people have admitted that they still wrestle with gay pornography. Okay. Now... That's wrong. Right. They're acting on that. It's private. It's individual. It's secretive. But they're acting on those same desires. So, no, I'm sorry. Can a, can a formerly gay person be truly saved and still have some of those desires? Yes. That What, what I'm saying is when you get them, put them to death. Mm -hmm. More than me, Scripture is saying that. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart come all of those evil desires. And that's why in Colossians chapter 3, uh, Paul uses a word, and it's one of the few times you'll hear me quote the King James, but in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, mortify the deeds of the flesh. Mortify what is earthly and even expands on it in you. In you. Not just the practice of you, but sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. He says on such of these things, the wrath of God is coming. But put them away. And then he adds to that list, Jeff, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. He deals with the motive and the mandate. He deals with the, the vice internally and the vice expressed physically. And so this is the thing, put on as God's chosen one, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. This is where the desire and the action are both deadly. That's what I'm saying. Jeff, as is, is, is two heterosexual men here, I get asked this all the time. In fact, I was asked by some of the founders of Revoice. Well, Steve, when is it that you actually chose to be heterosexual? And I said, at the moment of conception of my mother's womb, it was granted to me. Every person on the planet is born heterosexual. No one is born homosexual. That alleviates responsibility to take credit for your perverse choices. Mm -hmm. 
And so this is the thing that we have to recognize as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heterosexual desire by its very nature is natural. It is normal. It is given by God. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, 26 and 27, that a woman lying with a woman, a man lying with a man, is a sin against nature. It's a, they exchange their natural desire of heterosexuality to that which is unnatural. So we all know biblically, it may not be culturally acceptable, it may not even be politically correct, it doesn't matter. But biblically, Jeff, all are born heterosexual. And it's not a sin for a man to look at a woman and say, wow, there's an attractive gal. If you're single, I'd like to ask her out on a date. Or for a woman to look at a young man and say, man, that's a handsome young guy. I'd love to go out on a date with him. That's a natural function. But for a gay man or a lesbian woman to have that same desire, hey, there's a good-looking man. I hope he asked me out as a gay man. No, that's unnatural, Romans 1 tells us. But more than being unnatural, it's a sin against God. So the orientation of being gay is sinful. The same sex of attraction, just even in desire, is sinful. And that's why they, in terms of regeneration, must be transformed by the same gospel of grace you and I have to be transformed by. It must affect desire and the physicality and the expression of that desire. Both, for the gay man or woman, are unacceptable to God. Right, exactly. And I think... I think in all reality, a lot of the confusion, I think, around this issue, I think, is because of how politicized it's all become. And, no and, question. And so, yep. like, within the church, right now, I feel like we have two kind of polar opposites. You've got one where it's, well, we just have to accept them, and, you know, you can be a gay Christian and that sort of thing. And then you have the polar opposite, which is a lot of times you have the political side of Christianity, which is like, okay, we need to oppose, you know, homosexuality at every single turn and that means you know trying to uh whether it's tell somebody who's not a christian that you have to change and be straight right and there's that kind of debate but i think that there's something in the middle of it it all surrounds the gospel and i think both polar ends miss miss the point of you if you change somebody before becoming a christian it does it accomplishes nothing because they're still going to hell if they reject christ so there's this idea that you have to come to christ and then through that, and through that justification, and then leading into sanctification, that's where the Holy Spirit will begin to change you, and then we can be preaching and coming alongside with you and that sort of thing. But I think that there's kind of a disconnect, especially among a lot of these pastors that you were mentioning before, where they're being silent on this issue. They're missing a major opportunity to proclaim the gospel because we can... It, this is a clear gospel opportunity that a lot of pastors are missing, I think, with this situation. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know what? I said Galatians 6 before. Let me correct myself. It's Galatians 5. I'm mm-hmm. sorry about that. Uh, but I say walk by the Spirit, peripatao. It means to keep step in single file with Christ. Walk by the Spirit. Here's sanctification. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There it is. Now notice, Paul is not singling out gay people here. Mm-hmm. This is for all of us. And the desires are wide and numerous. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. The two, Paul is saying here, should not be able to coexist. 
we're going to choose one and cho- or choose the other. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you should do. Now, James tells us the failure to do right is sin. So the failure to act in, in, in relation to walking with the Spirit is sin. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And again, some of these words are translated as homosexuality. And things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. Here's the punchline. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, and notice it, Jeff, with its passions and with its desires. Mm -hmm. So if you live by the Spirit, keep step with the Spirit. See, there it is. These guys have missed it. I don't know why this is hard for Dr. Moeller to simply say, yeah, revoice is a mistake, is it doesn't reflect biblical Christianity. I don't know why John Piper just can't say that to Sam Alberry. Sam, why can't you say it? Right. Uh, why can't Wesley Hill say it? Mm-hmm. Why can't Greg Johnson, the quote-unquote pastor, I think he's apostate, of the church of Memorial PCA in St. Louis that hosted this conference, this ungodly display of concert. I, I think Revoice, very honestly, it's the new gay bar for, for the PCA. Mm-hmm. Because they did not call people to repentance. They did not call them to biblical sanctification. In this short time together, we've looked at not only action, but passion, desire, vice, and expression of the vice. Those are things we, listen, I'm not acting judgmentally here. Those are things that you and I must do also every day. That's what, that's what I mean is these guys don't get a special sanctification. They don't get a loophole in holiness. Right. They don't get a convenience what it means to carrying a cross. Uh, we all have the same Bible. We all have the same call to sanctification. So let's do it. And you know what? Just because the head of it went to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and were maybe mentored by Al Mohler and his father was there as well and they were back years ago condoning this kind of thing. But Al recently said, oh, I would never condone any of this, but he's not being truthful. He's trying to play politics. He's covering his bio. That's not accurate. It's not truthful. I don't know why any of these guys um, aren't more bold. And listen, MacArthur's been so faithful throughout the years. John, I love you, my friend. Why are you silent on this? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you calling Mulder to repentance? Why aren't you getting Piper on the phone and saying, John, this is not right? Why aren't you saying to the heads of the PCA and the heads of the SBC, you cannot have this and have this? Why aren't you on the phone or from the pulpit calling out Dr. Moore? Right. And saying the ERLC is playing politics with the gospel, politics with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot go there. I'm canceling Shepherd's Conference next year until this is dealt with. Mm-hmm. You know, why aren't these guys saying, like Amos 5 says, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the, the sound of your instruments. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. By the way, Amos said that, not Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the key reason for that is that 
they're not willing to say, if holiness means something in our worship to the Lord, we don't care what seminary you came out of. Preston Sprinkle, one of the champions of Revoice, is a graduate of the Master's Seminary. Is he? I did not know that. Absolutely. And he likes to boast about it. Mm-hmm. So there, MacArthur has a point of contact. Right. He should deny that as being an evidence of real faith. John's a good guy. He's preached the gospel straight. He's lived, man, a, a very godly life in the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to be silent on this. Right. Al Moeller is a guy that has championing sound doctrine for decades. Al, why are you stuttering on this? This is a no-brainer, brother. Mm-hmm. You know, in all of them, why is the PCA? We're not talking the PCUSA. We're talking the PCA. Why did Co- Covenant Seminary embrace this thing? Yeah. Why is Scott Sauls, a pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, embracing these things? Is Scott gay? Of course not. Mm-hmm. But why is he lending his name? Why is Karen... Rent, lent, lending her name to this. Yeah. You know, why do they play footsie with this thing? Yeah. And then it should say something when I try to engage Sam Alberry that he blocks me on Twitter almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Wesley Hill, he blocks me almost immediately. Yeah. I mean, why did these guys not want to have, hey, they're willing to have the conversation with any guy on the planet that says they're queer. Mm-hmm. I, I told people, if I showed up at Revoice, in fact, as you know, the pastor there, Greg Johnson, threatened me with arrest if I even came on the campus. I remember seeing that. Yeah, and that was right. And that was after you offered to buy them coffee and sit down and just talk over the open word of God. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I said, let's go to Starbucks, open up the Bible and discuss these things. Then I was threatened with arrest. Uh, uh, Nate Collins banned me from the conference. I was the first one to get banned. Then along with, with Tom Littleton and Stephen Black and others and Janet and mm-hmm. Medford and so forth. But the bottom line is is that if I showed up dressed as a woman speaking in a very effeminate voice, in other words, if I showed up as Caitlyn Jenner, I'd be welcome. Yeah. But I show up as a Reformed Baptist minister who's been in, in ministry and music and in the Word for 46 years, and I, I disagree with them. I'm not welcome. Mm-hmm. That should speak volumes to these people. Where are these brothers that are saying we're not going to try to be social justice convenient warriors anymore? We're going to stand for the truth of God's Word unapologetically. And listen, if Nate and Wesley and these others were, were to get up and call them all to repentance and say, I once was a, a gay man. I mean, how terrible it is, Jeff, for Nate Collins, married 14 years to a woman, has a bunch of kids, and he still gets up there and says, I still identify as a gay man. Right. How tragic for that woman. What an affront on her femininity and on her uh, being the heart of that home in that marriage. These men are playing fast and loose to the truth. Truth be known, I don't think any of them uh, are truly regenerated because a true regenerated man of God would not do that. Right. Would not practice that. Would not still consider himself homosexual. Mm-hmm. And that's, I'm not against the gay community. We'd love to have our church full of people from the gay community hearing the gospel. But the bottom line is, this is not Christianity, and especially when Paul says it so clear. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They don't get to have same-sex attracted desires and orientation and still say they belong to Jesus Christ. Not as a pattern, not as a lifestyle, 
How dare they say they're hyphenated in their love for the Lord and they still want to walk in the homosexual contingencies. Biblically, it doesn't fly and it doesn't fly for them. And Jeff, it doesn't fly for any of us. We're not asking anything that the scripture, we're not asking for a loophole, brother. Mm -hmm. We're not asking for any of us that are heterosexuals that don't struggle with that particular sin, but maybe we have anger issues or bitterness issues or malice issues or self-righteous issues. We're not saying I get to be a malice in Christian, a Christian. I get to be a human trafficking Christian. No, any sin that we once were in our former life that once marked us before we came to know Jesus, that life has been crucified. It is gone. It is dead and buried. And if in, in desire or in action, if it rears its ugly head, like it did with David, you know, mm-hmm. like Paul even said, I wouldn't even know I'm covetous. And he's speaking as a believer, unless the law said you're covetous. That was his issue. Whatever our issue is, we don't get to be hyphenated issues accommodating our sin while we're still saying we're in love with the Savior. Those worlds cannot coexist. That's what makes Revoice. That's what makes IFD. That's what makes the ERLC with, with Dr. Moore and all this so dangerous. That's what makes Tim Keller and the Marxist influence of the gospel that he's propagating the church so dangerous. Why? It can get in and it's gangrene. It'll pollute the body of Christ and it'll lead some unsuspecting, naive people away from the faith even for a season. It's not healthy. It wasn't healthy in the old church. It's not healthy in the New Testament church. Right, exactly. And, you know, and kind of summarizing, like, because we've, ta- we've talked about a lot of different, you know, kind of issues within the church and different false teachings and that sort of thing. And it, it, it brings me back to Second John 10 and 11, where it says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And, yeah. and we've seen how many of the pastors and many of the prominent pastors have, have refused to get involved with a lot of these issues, everything from the interfaith dialogue to revoice to, you know, any number of issues. So, number one, at what point are, the, are these guys that are silent participating in these wicked works by still speaking with them at conferences, inviting them to speak at their own conferences, that sort of thing? But then at at what point is it too many degrees of separation, you know, for us to say, well, we can't, you know, work with you if you don't speak on this issue or whatever it is. Like where, where is that line of understanding? Okay. Number one, we need to know how to respond to it. But number two, how do we respond to the people who are giving a pass to a lot of these guys? Well, I think this, I think that, that some of these men, um, let's, Let's use Grace Community Church, a church that you were raised in, a church we both love and admire, especially its pastor, John MacArthur. Right. Um, We understood that they were allowing the Gospel Coalition, I call them the Gospel Compromise, Mm -hmm. the the TGC, they were supposed to be in there uh, this last spring to do a conference there. Uh, now, they, they said, I believe through Phil Johnson afterwards, that, well, we didn't understand all they wanted to do. Listen, that's that's not being truthful. We all have known the Gospel Coalition has been going down an apostate path for years. We were all stunned and thanked the Lord for all of us in the Twitter land that was willing to say something. That got back to the powers that be. The elders readdressed it. John put the kibish on it. 
he withdrew from the conference and Grace finally did the right thing. Now, did they lack discernment? Yes. And they can't claim ignorance on this. It would have been better if they just said, man, we knew it. We were hoping it wouldn't be this bad. Uh, we've, we have rescinded our offer. Just own it. Make it a 30-second deal and move on. Right. But when they try to justify it or claim ignorance or saying, well, everyone except for Alistair Begg and Kevin DeYoung. You know, well, mm-hmm. no. Alistair, how come you're not leaving the TGC with all that's going on? Kevin. You're young and you like to be political and you like to hobnob with these guys. You're not in their league. Why don't you leave? I mean, really, these these guys should be out of that organization and they should be calling them to repentance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the thing. Now, here's the deal. Uh, John and the elders of Grace Community Church ultimately did the right thing. And that's the thing that is so uh, vitally important. Uh, ultimately they came around, ultimately they did the right thing. And I think that's where any of us have to be as, uh, as the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may not eventually, we may not always initially, I'm sorry, that's the right word, do the right thing. Mm-hmm. But hopefully we'll come to our senses, wake up and finally turn from those things. And that, that marks my life. I'm sure if Phil Johnson was up with was out with this right now, he would say, boy, you know, I regret some of those early decisions I've made. Maybe Mac would say the same thing. Some of the elders of grace. Well, that's all of us. We're in process. We haven't arrived doing perfect theology, taking perfect stances. But none of us can claim ignorance anymore. We all have the Bible in ways that former generations could only have hoped for on iPads and iPhones. And we have thousands of documents and books and Greek manuscripts and wonderful works of theology. Plus, we all know we believe we're not surprised by any of this. So when these men uh, wrongly embraced the conference, if if John had let the TGC in and reaped the fruit of that thing, we would have been on Twitter calling him to repentance on that issue. Not that he's not our dear brother and a beloved man of God and one that stood for sound doctrine, but you know, Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 to 9, if he, myself as an apostle or an angel from heaven gives you a different doctrine than what I've taught you, let me be anathema. Mm-hmm. I mean, he included himself there. And by the way, he praised the Bereans in Acts 17 for questioning him with the word of God and holding him accountable to its truth. And he says, these are more noble than the Thessalonians for doing it. Right Now, these guys today, because their mailing list might get affected, their conference attendance might get elected, might be negated, their study Bibles may, might lose a few sales. Uh, but you know what? They are, Paul was teachable. All we can do is pray for these dear men of God that we've loved in our generation, that they would still be teachable from younger ones, and that they would still say, man, my bad, my wrong, I'm not going to dance around it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and do that. Now, does that mean that we need to embrace them at other conferences until they get this right? No, it doesn't. Um, I just ordered James James White. James, if you hear this, I just ordered uh, your uh, book, The King James Only Controversy, and I want to have our eldership and deacons go through it. Mm-hmm. It's an excellent book. Uh, James's book, The God Who Justifies is an excellent book. It's a wonderful book. Um, I would encourage every believer to to read that book. It is tremendous. 
uh, his, his some of his other book, The Potter's Freedom on the Sovereignty of God out of Romans 9, and Salvation, tremendous. And James's book, The Forgotten Trinity, you and I have been discussing that a little bit. These, these books are worthy of recommendation and worthy of the body of Christ enjoying. And James will rise up and call you blessed for all the years that you've put into this kind of study. And by the way, his YouTube videos on textual criticism and on the reliability of Scripture— no better guy we have on the planet representing this, maybe besides William Mounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we thank the Lord for James. However, on IFD with Yasser Qadi, James gets it 100% wrong. And so if I, were, if I were to extend an invitation for James to come to our church, which I would feel very comfortable in doing, uh, to teach on the God who justifies, to teach on the King James only controversy, to go through textual variance and textual criticism and, uh, you know, the reliability of Scripture, I wouldn't hesitate to have him come in. Mm-hmm. But would we have him come in to do a debate with an imam in our church? Not a chance. Right. He's missed it on that. He's wrong on that. So this is where we have to be careful. We don't amputate somebody. Uh, and a mutual friend of ours was calling him a non-believer for many days and saying that that uh, you know everything he teaches is heresy and so forth. Well, that's irresponsible. Right. That's not being wise. Mm-hmm. But I think for a time, I would not want Al Mohler to come to our church and preach right now. Why? Because he's conflicted. And he's got to repent of this thing. He has to show where he can give a clear statement not justifying revoice and owning up to what he said in the past and and that he lied about Nate and his father attending these gay kind of uh, rallies and championing uh, the gay Christian motif. Mm-hmm. Al said we wouldn't allow somebody here at the seminary to do that or promote that. Well, you know what? He knows better than that. He wasn't being truthful. Right. So I wouldn't have Al right now or any of these other evangelical leaders uh, that have done that. And I think that's where our degree of separation must come. Hey, listen, brother, for whatever reason you turn the corner theologically here, you're on the downgrade. It's a methodological suasion, Spurgeon said, that always happens first. And then the theology they have to invent follows. So a lot of these guys now are dancing. A lot of them are trying to figure out, wow, Revoice was as bad as we thought it was and as all the critics thought it was going to be. How do I make this right? Al just came out with an article two days ago that went through pages and pages and pages of doing the, the evangelical two-step. And then the very last line of the, of the article here, Jeff, said, Revoice, uh, we cannot say that Revoice is consistent with biblical Christianity mm-hmm. or supports biblical Christianity. And I was like, man, he buried the headline. Yeah. Why not open with that and then tell people why and ask for forgiveness that he did not say it more clearly to begin with? Uh, For some reason, there's a reason why, Al, and I'm telling you, it's a friend or a family member that struggles with homosexuality. It always turns out to be that way. When an evangelical leader as strong as Al's been on so many issues is vacillating on something, stuttering on something, it always turns out to be. Maybe he was stuttering because of Nate. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's got a maybe he's got a distant family member, someone close to him at the seminary that's a dear friend that's got involved in the gay lifestyle, and so he stutters. He's he's trying to show compassion, 
but yet still trying to be theologically strong. And he's he's wondering how those two worlds will will blend. And the fact is, they don't. Mm-hmm. And that's that's usually what happens with these guys. Um, it happened to Campolo. Same thing. Right. Turned out to be a family member. Same kind of thing. And what I'm saying is, but but then why isn't guys that are very strong, biblical guys like Alistair Begg, um, like MacArthur? Now, Kevin DeYoung did a little article for the TGC that talked about language, how important language is. But Kevin didn't, you know, amputate himself from it. Shame on him. Yeah. He's young. He wants to be one of the big guys. He'll dance the dance all night long just to be included with those guys. We know that. Uh, Kevin wants to be viewed as one of those big stalwarts. He's not there yet, not by a long shot. He's not qualified to carry MacArthur's briefcase. He's not in that league. But, Kevin, if you ever listen to this interview, you're part of the Gospel Coalition. Why isn't it that you haven't called out Tim Keller on his Marxism? Right. Why isn't it that you haven't called out D.A. Carson for writing the foreword to Greg Cole's book, The Gay Christian? Why didn't you immediately step aside from the Gospel Coalition and be a man and step up and do the right thing biblically? Alistair, you as well, step away from it, brother. It's not worth it. These men are not giants. They're thin in the pulpit. And we're, you know, Jeff, where are the John Knoxes today? Yeah. Where are the Charles Spurgeons today? Mm-hmm. Where are the Luthers today that aren't considering the political fallout of some of these things? They're willing to speak the truth in love. And, and until that happens, to go back to your excellent question, until that happens, these men should not be invited back to Together for the Gospel, to, uh, you know, to the... Um, uh, Masters, or pardon me, the Shepherds Conference at Grace Community Church. Even if it just turns out to be John and one other guy speaking, then so be it. Right. Holiness matters, and that should be how it is for all of our lives. We all go awry sometimes. The question is, have you repented, and are you living for Christ now, or are you still entertaining those old notions for whatever reason? Right. Exactly. And I think, and I think that that's that's the important point and the important question right there at the end um so so what i what i so we've spent this entire time we pretty much agree on like everything but with people (laughs) with people that i agree with i always want to try to find something that we disagree with because i'd like to hear your your perspective on it so um so one of the things that i believe that we disagree on is i believe that you're all millennial right oh absolutely yeah okay and so, so you and you know me. I I grew up in the whole John MacArthur crowd and that sort of thing. So, and I've never actually had heard, actually spoken to somebody who believes in amillennialism who could actually explain it in a you know in a quick, easy way for me to be able to understand. So, ultimately, what is amillennialism? Uh, well, amillennials, millennialism. It's a bit misnamed because the I would say that there is no millennial. Okay, And amillennialists, or some prefer the title inaugurated millennial, uh, means this. We believe, Revelation 20, clearly the context of that is in glory. Uh, It does not teach a thousand-year physical reign of Christ on earth. That's foreign from Revelation 20, even though that's where all millennial beliefs go to prove their point. It is, though, in glory. And... uh, 
and so the, the, the brief answer, because this is a, another hour and a half to unpack. This, yeah, for sure. Totally. <laughs> but, but all as the amillennialist believes is that we believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and that the inaugurated millennium is between his first coming and his second coming. Okay. That's as simple as I can make it. Uh, in that Satan is bound, and Revelation 20 is clear on what he is bound from doing. And he is bound from deceiving the nations. What does that mean? So that the gospel could go out. Now, is there still such a thing as spiritual warfare? Yes, read Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. We know that Satan even now prowls like a roaring lion, willing to devour those that he wants to. He is there to tempt and to destroy and bring doubt and discouragement, and he battles against the church. But the interesting thing is, though, that's, that's how he is bound, though, from deceiving the nations. The gospel is going forth. And then it says at the end of that time, right before the second coming, he's going to be released for a short time to try to deceive the nations. That's the binding of Satan. It's not that he's locked in a pit somewhere for a thousand years with this thousand millennial uh, nirvana uh, utopia being lived out on earth. Uh, the dispensationalists that believe that, uh, they believe also that Ezekiel 40 to 48 is the rebuilding of some future millennial temple. Mm -hmm. Not the, simply the Herodian temple being rebuilt, which we know according to history happened. Uh, but what they believe is that there's a rebuilding of the temple. And along with the coming to the rebuilding of that temple, Jeff, they believe that there's a reinstating of the Old Testament sacrifices that went on during during the Old Covenant. Well, that's blasphemous, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. Because when Christ said on the cross, it is finished, he is the culmination of the Day of Atonement. He is the culmination of the Passover feast. He is the culmination of the, the grain offering, the peace offering, the fat offering, the bird offering. It all is satisfied. All of it in the Old Covenant is satisfied in Jesus Christ. The temple veil is torn. It is done away with. There's no need for any Old Testament sacrifices because then I want to ask somebody, and I've, when I've asked my dispensational friends, well, if you rebuild the temple and you reinstate the temple sacrifices, then you have to re-sew up the Holy of Holies. And then where's who's going to be the representative in the Aaronic Levitical line? And then where is the Ark of the Covenant with the piece of manna from the wilderness and Aaron's, you know, budding rod and the original stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. If you're going to redo it all, you got to redo it all. Right. And the whole point is dispensational. It's a Johnny come lately to the, to the scheme anyway, and the idea uh, of a rapture and then only New Testament church saints are taken out. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's really fictitious. It didn't exist until the early 1800s. And so for the majority of the church age mm -hmm. has been the reformed position of, and Jesus only spoke of this. He, he spoke of a first coming of when he came and he only spoke of a second coming. And that's all that he ever spoke of. Mm -hmm. And we see that. And then we see the fulfillment of Matthew 24 in the destruction of the temple once for all. It was entirely destroyed uh, and Israel was tirely overcame, and the land promise we know was fulfilled in Joshua, uh, Joshua uh, twenty-one, 
from the Abrahamic covenant, but we do know the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is by grace through faith in Christ, Galatians 3.29. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of a land promise, the whole idea that we're grafted into Israel rather than Israel being grafted into Christ, um, the whole idea of rebuilding the Old Testament temple and the reinstatement of the Old Testament sacrifices, no. You know, he came once. He died for our sins. He ascended. He rose from the grave. He ascended into the heavenlies. Now we wait for the second coming. And what does, what immediately follows the second coming of Christ is judgment. Okay. And that's what that's what we see in all of the great passages proclaiming the Lord's return. Whether it's Matthew uh, twenty-five and the sheep and the goats being separated. Whether it's First Thessalonians four, then judgment in First Thessalonians five. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that happen. So in simplicity, that's what amillennialism is. It means we don't believe in a physical millennial kingdom uh, because the Lord never taught that. Mm-hmm. His kingdom is not of this world. And he said, if my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would have been fighting. Right. John eighteen thirty six. 36. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't believe in the whole Tim LaHaye left behind TBN, Benny Hinn theory of the rapture and all of this. It's really a comic book form of Christianity. We believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be blasphemous for our Lord to return to this earth, set up a thousand-year millennial kingdom, and have to, as the resurrected Lamb of God, reinstitute all the Old Testament sacrifices when he said already that was being done away with and that in him it's all been made complete. We'd have to make out our Lord a liar and disavow the fullness of the atonement on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's that's as brief as I can make it. Of course, of course. And I know that and you'd mentioned, I believe it was 1 Thessalonians 4 that I know was talking about, you know, kind of some end time stuff. How, how do you, how quickly, how do you deal with like verse 16 and 17 where it's talking about how, those who are alive or left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Because that's kind of the, the main verse that a lot of people use for, to, to support the rapture. Uh, yeah, well, here's the thing. that The word rapture comes from the, the 4th century Vulgate, uh, Latin raptura. When the Reformers used to speak of the rapture, they, were, they meant it synonymous with the return of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, what you have is you only literally have uh, a half of a phrase in one Greek word that they appeal to mm-hmm. in First Thessalonians uh, chapter four, and and these are very familiar words to to all of us here. But in First Thessalonians chapter four, pardon me, we see this we see this occurring, um, and he, and it's couched in the language. Um, of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is couched in that language. And let me let me uh, get my iPad here and pull it up because I want to make sure I'm representing it accurately. Sure. First um, Thessalonians chapter four. Here we go. Um, the apostle, the apostle Paul here, he relates this so that people are not ignorant over the second coming of the Lord. Some were coming to him and saying, I do not want you to be uninformed about those who had fallen asleep. They were grieving. Did we miss the resurrection? 
And he says, I don't want you to grieve as others who have no hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, it's not the rapture, it's the second coming, will precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul uses that term of Christians who have died, their spirits immediately go into the presence of the Lord, but he, he speaks of them as their bodies just being fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, with a cry of command. There is no secret rapture. There is no secret returning like the Left Behind movies, you know, where you see, oh, my goodness, they were sitting right next to me. And now there's all these piles of clothes here. Right. As if all these naked bodies just flew in the sky. I mean, it's kind of, <laughs> kind of frightful in a way. Uh, you know, and with the voice of an archangel, most consider that to be Michael, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. This is a loud announced event. The king is coming. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Here is any believer in the Lord who has died. Their bodies will rise first. What is that? John 5, 28, 29. A resurrection of a glorified body unto life. And they are joined with their disembodied spirits in the clouds of glory with the Lord. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Notice that. We're caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, those are the clouds of glory. They're not like the beautiful clouds. I remember my dad telling me as a, as a boy, Jeff, he would, we'd be outside. We, you know, as a, I was five or six or seven years old, and we'd be taking a, a ride to McDonald's. I mean, we'd go hit shag balls together. My dad loved to play golf, and he started me at a young age. And he would say to me, well, Steve, I got some bad news today. And I said, what's that? He goes, look up in the sky. There are no clouds in the sky. I guess the Lord can't come back today. And he would kind of, he would kind of chuckle and, you know, chuckle and wink at me and so forth. Right. But the clouds are not these beautiful clouds we get in Southern Florida here. They are the clouds of glory. And he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. They come out of the tombs. And then those of us who are alive, we're still left on the planet, but we are left. We are now caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord mm -hmm. he's come back he takes us home that's the second coming we're caught up together with him and being caught up there the Greek word harpazo harpazo it means to be snatched away by force it, it's it's a violent seizing. It's a claiming, uh, a snatching away. And, and this is where the return of Christ, it's true. He comes. Revelation 1, every eye will see him. In the prophets, they'll look on whom they have pierced. He will come. It is not a private little secret return. And then what we have after this is judgment and he says encourage one another with these words so this is the whole coming of christ by the way in the book of first thessalonians the return of christ is mentioned more here than it is any other place in the new testament and nine times you'll see re referring to the coming of the lord the second coming of christ the coming of christ and even the hardcore dispensationalists will say this but then they say well when you get to 1 Corinthians 4.16, or no, 4.17, now 
Paul completely changes his mind, and now it's a rapture. Mm-hmm. Which in ev- exegetically, consistently, every other mention in First Thessalonians is about the coming, the second coming of Christ. And this is the thing. We are not in darkness. We are children of the light. And what comes after the second coming is judgment. That, By the way, that's consistent in Revelation when the nations are destroyed in Revelation 19. And then we're given a, an example of the future in the first resurrection. All people died the first death. That's the physical death. The first resurrection are those whose spirits go to be with the Lord in glory. And that's we are, we are saved, we are brought into the presence of Christ. And those who are participating in the first resurrection don't, do not participate in the second death. And we know the second death, according to Revelation 20.14, is death in Hades being thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, which is eternal hell forever. But there is a resurrection in, in John 5.29, as well as in Daniel 12.2. There's a bodily resurrection for those who have known Christ. We get our glorified bodies, Jeff. We come out of the grave when he comes back. And if and if we're alive, we are caught up. We are transformed then in the twinkling of an eye. Our bodies are transformed. We will be glorified and we meet the Lord in the air. That's John 5, 28. Uh, and then the resurrection unto life, a glorified body. But there's also a resurrection unto death. John 5, 29, and Daniel 12, 2. And what happens there is their disembodied spirits would have been in Hades. No one's really physically in hell right now. Mm -hmm. Death and Hades get cast into hell. But those who have denied Christ, their spirits are in Hades. And when the resurrection occurs, when the coming of Christ occurs, and you can read about this in Revelation chapter 20, uh, 11 to 15, and there's immediate judgment. And what happened? The books are open, and every man is judged as to what he has done. And then there's another book open, the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, death and Hades, the false prophet, the beast, and Satan himself, they are thrown, all of it, into eternal hell, along with those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life forever. And so what you see there in Revelation 20 is a great replaying of the war out of 16 and 19. Uh, Revelation is not chronological. Mm-hmm. It never has been. It's not chron- just like Daniel is not chronological. But what we have there is a wonderful expression at the second coming of Christ. We get resurrected with a glorified body. In Revelation 21, we, we enter the new heavens and the new earth. Those who have denied Christ get a body of death to be tormented night and day in the second death. We all die the first death physical death. Those who know Christ, the first resurrection, uh, into the presence of the Lord. As it were, the resurrection of the glorified state comes John 5, 28, 29 in Daniel chapter 12. And we get our glorified body. But those who do not know Christ, they die the second death. Something that we as Christians will never have to face. That's why we say with Paul, Lord, come quickly. Right. So that's that's amillennialism uh, in a very very short uh, explanation. There is so much to it. And I spent, people can get on at crosschurch.net. I taught the book of Revelation for two and a half years uh, from an Amil perspective. And we dealt with it all. We, we also did a series in there of Romans uh, 
9, 10, and 11, because MacArthur does get this right. His eschatology is terrible. I love John. <laughs> but his eschatology is terrible. Uh, I think it was his Bob Jones upbringing or Talbot Seminary. It corrupted him somehow. Uh, <laughs> but but here, um, when uh, when John says in in uh, Revel in uh, in his eschatology, he goes, "We got to get Israel right to get eschatology right," and he's hundred percent correct. Right. And Revelation, pardon me, Romans nine, ten, and eleven tells us who Israel is, and it's not a hunk of land in the Middle East. It is, according to Ephesians two. 10 and following, it's now every Jew and every Gentile who has faith in Jesus Christ. The dividing wall is taken down by the Lord because of the cross. And now there's only one family of God. In Galatians 6.16, we are now the Israel of God. And who's the Israel of God? Every saved man or woman from both Jew and Gentile brought into one household of faith. Some people will say to me, Oh, Steve, do you believe in replacement theology? No, never have, never will. There's always been only one covenant people. Mm -hmm. And the Abrahamic covenant even wasn't to bring the gospel to the Jew. It was to be Abraham, a father of many nations, right? Yep. Of Jew and Gentile. So I don't believe in replacement theology. The gospel came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, but there's only been one covenant people of God. And we are considered, Galatians 3.29, sons of Abraham, if we have faith in Abraham's seed, not seeds plural, but seed, who is Jesus Messiah. There's the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in Messiah, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior. And by grace through faith in him, we are sons of Abraham. And then, you know, the Lord comes wherever we're going to be with the Lord. It's simple, Jeff. You would love amillennialism. It's great theology. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's simple. And you know what it saves us from? You don't have to wonder. Uh, and MacArthur, if you listen to his early sermons on Revelation, oh, they're terrible because he's talking about, you know, the Antichrist is on earth right now. He's almost panicked. Yeah. You know, in the in the, the League of Nations, the ten European nations in Europe study it. It's right there. And John's teach I was listening to some of it a few weeks ago. It's just kind of fun. Mm -hmm. And it, he gets it entirely wrong, and it causes panic. I call it a headline eschatology. Some guys were even saying Obama was the Antichrist. Well, listen, he may be bisexual, and he may be a bad president, but he's not the Antichrist. I mean, give him a little credit <laughs> and, and pray for his salvation. Right. You know, some people thought Gorbachev was the Antichrist. He had that birthmark on there. Some people thought Ronald Wilson Reagan was the Antichrist. Why? Because Ronald Wilson Reagan each had six litters mm -hmm. in his name, 666. It just gets crazy yeah. how they do this left behind stuff. And this secret rapture, and then, a, and then the the Antichrist comes, according to their view, in Daniel 9, 27, and makes a contract with the Antichrist when the whole of Daniel 9 is about the coming of Messiah and the Antichrist is not even mentioned. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have to, I asked MacArthur one time, we were discussing this, I said, John, Daniel 9, 27, the Antichrist isn't even mentioned. He goes, yeah, but if I give that to you, my whole system falls apart and I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and even he was laughing. I love John. Yeah. You know? He'll get it right when he understands, oh, there is no seven-year tribulation. Never taught in the Bible, not one time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not. It's not in Scripture. Uh, there is no thousand-year millennium taught in Scripture, not one time. A physical kingdom on earth, and then 
where do all these people come? And then all of a sudden it's a sinful place. How did it get sinful? You've got the Lord of glory governing beautifully on earth for a thousand years, but yet sin flourishes. How, how does that happen? Considering all the nations are destroyed at the end of 19, Revelation 19, how do you come into this peaceful millennial kingdom, but all these nations replenishing themselves with unsafe people? Mm-hmm. And all the people and all the nations have been judged in 19. It, you've got to, you know, you've, you've got to do, you got to smoke something there, Jeff, to believe <laughs> that. It really is fun. So I, yeah. I like to have fun with it. What I don't For appreciate sure. is when um, I sent some tweets out to James Wood and so forth. Or, and uh, then was it Andy Wood? It, oh, James Wood? Or, no, pardon me, Andy Wood. Yeah, 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 that's right. Andy Wood. And I asked Andy to respond and he wouldn't respond. Then he blocks me. I don't appreciate that. Andy should know enough of the Bible to be able to converse with a little uh, millennial Christian artist from the past who's a pastor now of a small Baptist church. He ought to be able to do that. And then our mutual friend that had on Tommy Ice or whoever it was or one of these guys, and they're discussing me Mm -hmm. for two full radio shows and never asking my opinion one time, and they're judging my whole eschatology by a couple of tweets. Yeah. Now, well, that's just not good form, Jeff. Even you know that, right? Right. right. Well, you know, and like that's, yeah. that's, that's my thing is that I think especially when it comes to eschatology, I think, I think that a lot of people can really place it up on a pedestal and put it like on par with the gospel. And I think that, you know, for me, I've always gone back and forth between uh, pre-trib and mid-trib. Um, yeah. I've always been, I've always felt like it's impossible for it to be post. Um, and you know, I've all, my, my thought process at least up, you know, for the last several years has been, I would rather between the pre, cause I grew up John MacArthur style pre-trib my entire life. Um, sure. after studying quite a bit, I did too. Yeah. After studying quite a bit, I slowly transitioned a little bit over to mid trip, even though I think there's still, there could still be a chance of it being pre. Um, but I've always thought that believing in mid trip is the least likely for people within the church to be deceived. So if there is an antichrist and there is a tribulation and there is a millennial reign and that sort of thing, if, Theoretically, if people believe in amillennialism and then the Antichrist actually does come and, you know, the tribulation happens and that sort of thing, potentially a lot of people could be deceived because they, they don't believe in that happening, right? Or if, well, here, well, here's yeah. the thing. As, a, as an amill, uh, of course we believe in a, a man of lawlessness. Of course we believe in an Antichrist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, we believe that there's going to be a great war at the end of the age where they will be rallying the nations to be deceived, to make war with the Lamb. Mm-hmm. But it's just in Revelation 19, the battle is never even fought. The Lord comes back with his robe dipped in blood, meaning he's already victorious. Mm-hmm. That battle has been won. Yeah. There's no 200 million warriors coming out of China. Remember when that was popular about a generation ago? Mm-hmm. And guys were speaking of that, and they get all twisted, and then they're saying what John saw in his book of Revelation were helicopters and stingers and yeah. all these. I mean, it just gets funky. Yeah. The thing that you have to remember, too, is when was Revelation written, and what was it to John? In the Synoptic Gospels, they all have an Olivet Discourse, don't they? Mm-hmm. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't have one in his gospel. And I'll just pepper your thoughts by saying this, and then I have to, to go and give the most kind of dialogue here. What if Revelation was John's Olivet Discourse? Mm-hmm. And what did it mean to first century believers before the end of the first century when this letter was sent out to those seven churches? And what if uh, Revelation 4 through 19, what if a good part of that was warning? Uh, not only about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, but simply encouraging Christians to be ready for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, like he says in Revelation 15, that this is a cause for an endurance of the saints and the suffering of the saints. Uh, Mac likes to say, well, after Revelation 3, the church doesn't show up again to Revelation 20. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not true. The saints are there the entire time. Yeah. being persecuted, going through suffering. Listen, we live in a fallen world, and of course we're going to be persecuted. Um, and we know that the, the time during Nero, who really is the beast of Revelation, uh, and coming into the destruction of Jerusalem, we see that all happening in A.D. 70. Uh, but what do we wait for? We wait for the resurrection of the saints. We wait for the great end of all the battles, and we wait for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then forever we'll be there with the Lord. So it's not that Ah Mills don't believe in an Antichrist, mm -hmm. and we just don't believe uh, that it's how it's portrayed in the Tim LaHaye movie cycle of right. things, and a secret rapture, and that the Old Testament saints don't matter, and all of this. I mean, it's clear. Covenant theology, and that's really almost what we're talking about here, is brilliant because it, it ties Genesis to Revelation as one continuous plan of revelatory work to God. And there's a hermeneutic principle that many of these guys have left behind, and it's this. It's that the new always interprets the old. Mm -hmm. The New Covenant, the New Testament, always interprets the Old. The Old does not interpret the New in how these things will unfold. And that's what. And, and again, when guys want to make uh, Daniel 9.27, all of a sudden he's talking about the blessedness of the coming of Messiah and that he's going to end the transgression of sin and fulfill all righteousness and all these wonderful things. And then you come to Daniel 9.27, it's like, oh, yep, we're just going to make this about the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation. Mm -hmm. And it's it's literally invented. Uh, that's what's so frightening um, to me. So, yeah. I mean, good news. Uh, you know, as we like to say, my old buddy Keith Green uh, just celebrated, you know, his uh, home going to the Lord. I was with Keith in 1982, a month before he died. Uh-huh. And I can't believe it's been this many years so far, 46 years. Wow. wow. Yeah. Uh, a long time. But people ask, Steve, what did Keith believe? And I said, well, it doesn't matter. He's a Calvinist now. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it's the same thing. <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. Uh, Sproul just had his theology confirmed. And mm -hmm. my mentor, Stephen Olford, understands that, it, that Calvinism is really true. And it's all we can joke about it. It's all fun. Right. But here's the deal. I agree with you. Uh, eschatology, good men can disagree, and uh, but what we cannot deny is the return of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, that's full-on preterism, and that would be heresy. Right. 
uh, but it, it should not reach the level where it divides us. But when it supersedes the work of Christ, i.e. the building of the temple and its Old Testament sacrifices being reinstituted when Christ comes back, now we're stepping into the atonement in the sufficiency of what Jesus did in his cry that it is finished. And the sacrificial system by God the Father tearing that temple veil from top to bottom and then the temple physically being destroyed. It's never been rebuilt. Why? God is done with that. The old covenant, the old covenant, that old sacrificial system has been utterly destroyed. And that's where eschatology now matters. If people want to re-unwind all of that, we got a problem. Mm-hmm. For sure. Anyway. Jeff, I love you, man. Thank yeah. you so much for for I don't know how you're going to edit this, but man, God bless you. Yeah, of course, uh, and, I, and, I, and I hope people will enjoy it. And it's I been truly, a joy. I, I truly appreciate you taking the time to you know kind of go through all this. And I feel like we could talk for like another another two hours and never run out of anything to talk. Oh, about. Oh yeah, man, but, we got to have you come to Florida sometime. It'd be great to meet you face to face, meet my wife Cindy, and hang at the church and minister to these people. We'd love to have you sometime. It'd that be great. That would be a blast. And then if you could just share uh, how people can follow you on Twitter and your website and all that that kind of stuff, that would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Camponthis.com. Camponthis.com. Uh, the website. Uh, we're slowly, it's been my my uh, thing. I've got so many articles to write and to get transferred over. Yeah. But camponthis.com and then also on Twitter. This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. You can live a long, healthy life if you're HIV positive. With the current treatments, we can get patients down to being undetectable. The array of options is so much greater today. U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. If someone who's HIV positive, they're taking their medication, they're undetectable, they're not able to pass HIV to their partners. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your HIV treatment is their prevention. Get more information at doitforyoumc.org.